uh, welcome to those uh, who are doing kids in the first session. Um, hopefully, uh, you'll be able to kind of catch up with what we're doing. And um, uh, well done for teaching the kids. It's so important, that is, isn't it? I was talking to someone, we were talking about you know, how formative those years are in terms of uh, how we're learning and absorbing to understand who God is towards us. And so that's um, it's so, so important. It's wonderful to see how many children are part of your community. And um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a really, really good thing to be doing, to be modelling the faith to them and uh, seeking to teach them and pray for them. So it's great. Uh, we're thinking uh, here together about the Protestant Reformation, which um, began almost exactly 500 years ago on the 31st of October, 1517, when the Augustinian monk Martin Luther pinned his 95 theses to the door of the university church in Wittenberg in what is now Germany. And that action was... Um, I don't think Luther really thought that he was starting a reformation. It was just, it, in a way, it was the sort of 16th century equivalent of, of a provocative blog post, uh, you know, intended to kind of stir up discussion about, you know, the corruption of the church of which Luther was a part. But it turned out to be a watershed moment um, in the history of Western Europe and perhaps the whole world. It marked the beginning of the end of the Middle Ages, uh, an age of magic and superstition, giving way to a new age of reason and truth. And the complex series of events that followed in Germany and Switzerland and Scotland and England formed a reformation, not just of theology and ecclesiology, the way that we do church, um, but also a, a changing of the whole social order, a, tr a transformation, a reformation. We, we saw earlier that at the heart of the Reformation was the rediscovery from the Bible of God's revelation for how we can know him, how we can be right with him, how we can be, in the Bible's words, justified. And the Reformers' great discovery, we said, was that justification, being right with God, is not a matter of our works and efforts to be holy. No, rather it has to be a free gift entirely from God. Justification is by grace alone, received through faith alone. We said that um, because of the depths of our sin, the fallenness of our hearts, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot choose God. We do not want God. We're turned away curved in on ourselves and even our good works are not for God but for ourselves we cannot earn righteousness neither are we gradually made righteous by cooperating with God's assistance which was the official view of the church in Luther's day no we need to receive righteousness as a gift totally external to us So, not a gradual change of our state, but an immediate change of our status. When we trust in Jesus, God doesn't remove our sins, 
but he gives us the full righteousness of Christ and he fully accepts us on that basis. A full welcome in. We're declared righteous, justified. We can know God. We are right with him. There's no further contribution to be made. There is no condemnation to fear. You're in the clear forever. Even your ongoing sins cannot shake your new status. But we ended the last session by saying how. You know, how does this work? We said that it it all feels a bit abstract and kind of out there. Can it really be true that God sees me as righteous when, let's face it, in my attitudes and thoughts and behaviour, I'm not righteous? And if I've been given this righteousness of Jesus that kind of clothes me, well, it's not really me, is it, that God loves Is it just that God loves Jesus? You know, where do I fit in with that? It doesn't really feel like it works, does it? I mean, to me anyway, I I feel unconvinced. But secondly, we said, if it did work, if I really am seen as righteous and that status never changes, so I'm in the clear forever, what's to stop me just carrying on in sin? Can I keep sinning so that grace may increase as our reading starts? Can I just do as I please? And in theory, yes. But that doesn't sound great, does it? Now, the crucial way to answer these concerns and to see that our salvation really works, really sets us in the clear forever, and it really changes us in the here and now, the way to understand this, I think, is through the third sola. We're looking at these five rallying cries, these five summaries of the Reformation, the five solas. Earlier we saw... Uh, faith alone and grace alone sola gratia sola fide but the centre of it all I think is this third sola oh there's Martin Luther again Bye, Martin. <laughs> he's, not, he's not much to look at is he? Uh, so the third sola Christ alone solus Christus salvation is found in no other name than Christ and Christ alone This is really the centre that holds together all the other solas. God really accepts me. I am forgiven and righteous because he has given me his son. He has given us Christ. Now we're about to enter into the season of Christmas where we remember that God, the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, left his throne in heaven And came down and took to himself an additional nature, to his divine nature. He took our human nature in order that he might die for our sins and rise for our life. Christmas is about God uniting himself with our humanity. He, Jesus, became what we are so that we might become what he is. Or as that verse of Paul writes, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. So, union with Christ. Jesus uniting himself with our humanity and us becoming personally united to Jesus through our faith and by the work of the Holy Spirit. This was the key 
for the reformers for how we are counted righteous in Christ, how it really happens. Now, the reformers would point to the illustrations or analogies in the scriptures used to impress upon the Christian the reality of union with Christ that comes when we trust him. And we'll look at two of those. The first one of those pictures is the picture of the family. We're all born into families. It's how we come into the world. We all have parents and grandparents who may or may not be alive or, or we've known, but we maybe have siblings, we have uncles, aunts, cousins, we have a family history. We're born joined and connected to people whose likeness we bear. And Romans chapter 5, it's a good chapter to read on this illustration of the family. Romans 5 teaches us that this is true of the family of humanity. It says all humanity is born in Adam, the father of the human race, who sinned and brought death. So we're all born sharing Adam's doomed status and sinful inclinations. We're born in Adam. But Jesus, Paul writes in Romans 5, comes into the world and he joins himself to the human family. as He's called a new Adam, a new man, a perfect man. And we, through faith, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, can leave Adam's clan and be born again of Christ, a new humanity, sharing his status and his inclinations. So 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 says this, talks about two groups within humanity now. And it says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So there are two types of people in the world. You can only be in two places. You're either in Adam, in original humanity, or through faith and the power of the Spirit, you can get transferred into the kingdom of the Son. You can be in Christ, who died and was made alive. We join a new family. Another picture or analogy that's used, and this was definitely Martin Luther's favourite, um, is marriage. We'll talk a bit more about this um, tomorrow, but Luther, of course, the monk, got married. Um, I, love, I love it. He said that he did it in part to spite the Pope and the devil. It's brilliant, you know, because um, he's saying it's just, you know, this was part of the church kind of being... Uh, you know, oppressed by this false gospel that you have to kind of, that, you know, monks were somehow special, you know, and the real way to please God was to remain celibate. So on. he said, I spite the Pope and the devil. I get married, kind of thing. Even though he didn't really want to get married. But anyway, we'll come to that tomorrow. We'll come to that tomorrow. But, but Luther then used marriage. Um, of course, it's an image used, isn't it, throughout the Bible for God's relationship to his people. God is a husband to his people, Israel. Or Jesus is the bridegroom. His church is the bride. It's a very important illustration, isn't it, in, throughout the Bible. And when a man and a woman are married, in a, very, in a very real way, they are united. There is a sharing. There is a joining of lives. In the marriage service, 
they pledge to one another, all that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. And this, when you move in with somebody, this inevitably happens. Um, husband and wife take on each other. So all of the wealth, but all of the debts. All of the good things, but all of the problems and brokenness. They are joined. They share. Now, remember our objection to the idea that, that believers' sins are transferred to the cross and Jesus' righteousness is transferred to the believer. The, the two things are sort of, you know, you know, they're kind of beamed across the millennia. And it all sounds a bit weird. It's all very abstract. Um, Tom Wright, the theologian, says, you know, how can a judge impute, impart, bequeath his righteousness to the defendant? Righteousness is not an object or a substance or a gas that can be passed around. But if Jesus takes our sin and we take his righteousness because we are united to him, joined to him, Luther said cemented to him, just as, and in fact much more deeply than, a husband is united to his wife and they share all things. If that is the case, that we are united to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, then these objections begin to, to fall away. Let me try and explain a bit more. Luther loved to tell the gospel as, as the story of the rich and divine bridegroom Christ who marries the poor, wicked harlot, redeems her from all evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. So listen to Luther. He says this, Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them, and sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon him the things which are his bride's and bestow upon her the things which are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Judgment for sin is removed. Christ's righteousness is given, his status. So let's see this in the passage that we had read for us that's in your booklets, Romans chapter 6. Verse 2. Verse 2 begins to say, and this passage says right the way through, that we are that joined to Jesus by faith, it is as if everything that has happened to him is counted as having happened to us who believe. So Jesus died for sin, and therefore Paul can say to us in verse 2, we are those who have died to sin. Well, he says it, verse 8, we died. We died. The judgment... And if we died in Christ, we, can, we cannot now die as Christians. The, you know, the judgment, which is incredibly, incredibly deep assurance. You know when sometimes you think, well, maybe, you know, 
Now, I've done so much, you know, God is going to judge me. But actually, it would be unjust for, ju- for God to judge you, since you have already been judged in Christ. God cannot cause you to now die, because you've already died. The judgment for our sin has been paid. It cannot be exacted twice. There really is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I have a, a friend who's a Christian, a little lady called Joy, and she's very quietly spoken. And she's an amazing evangelist. She just kind of, you know, just, you know how evangelists sort of do that, you know, that, that they just sort of naturally talk to people about Jesus. And she, she does, and she was on an aeroplane um, once. She was telling me this story, um, that she was on an aeroplane on her own, going, going somewhere, and she sat next to a guy who was visibly very kind of scared and uncomfortable. And she sort of said to me, you know, are you okay? He said, I'm absolutely terrified about flying, you know. Um, you know, I'm just, you know, how, how does this thing get off the ground? I mean, look at it, you know. Uh, you, you, how does that work? You know, I'm just terrified about dying, you know. Aren't you scared of, of, of flying? Aren't you scared of dying? And she said, well, actually, I've already died. <laughs> to which he was like, that gave him something else to think about. <laughs> and then, you know, but, but actually what she was expressing is true. You know, I've already died. I can't now die. There's only life. In Christ, I've already died. Verse 5 says, We have been united with Jesus in a death like his. We will also be, it's unavoidable, united with Jesus in a resurrection like his. Verse 8 says, If we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Joined to Jesus, he takes our death, he gives us his life. Here's the thing. You see, at its heart, the gospel isn't isn't the good news that we've been given forgiveness, or the good news that we've been given eternal life, or freedom from judgment, or even the righteousness of Christ. The good news is that we have been given Christ himself. The gospel is Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone, in whom all our salvation and all the riches of grace are found. And this is wonderful news. We naturally place ourselves at the centre of our own sort of solar system, don't we? I often, I often walk around and I think that, that life is basically a movie about me. You know, and I'll have my, you know, my soundtrack on. And you're all actors in the movie, which is all about me. Don't, do you live like that? Okay, it's just me. But we place ourselves kind of at the centre of our solar system. And we think that then becoming a Christian means kind of bringing Jesus somewhere into our orbit. But no. When we trust in Jesus, he unites our lives with him. And at the centre of our lives now is a, is a marriage. It's not just us but Jesus himself. Listen to the great Victorian preacher and heir of the Reformation, Charles Spurgeon, uh, the Baptist, preaching to his congregation at the Elephant and Castle. He says to them, he implores them, he says this, remember that he sees us now in Christ. Behold, he has put his people into the hands of his dear son." He sees us in Christ to have died, in him to have been buried, 
and in him to have risen again. As the Lord Jesus Christ is well-pleasing to the Father, so in him we are well-pleasing to the Father also. For our being in him identifies us with him. If then our acceptance with God stands on the footing of Christ's acceptance with God, it standeth firmly and is an unchanging argument with the Lord God for doing us good. If we stood before God in our own individual righteousness, our ruin would be sure and speedy. But in Jesus, our life is hid beyond peril. Firmly believe that until the Lord rejects Christ, he cannot reject his people. Until he repudiates the atonement and the resurrection, he cannot cast away any of those with whom he has entered into covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it really works. We are in Christ. We're united to him. And God sees us in that close relationship with Jesus. And he says, that person is mine because they are Christ's. But what about the second question? Does then the secure gift of salvation just mean that we kind of settle for our sin? Um, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called kind of cheap grace. You know, we make peace with it. Because let's face it, we are still sinful. Luther said we are simultaneously sinners and righteous. But what do we do with our sinfulness? Might there be a danger that we make peace with it, that we go soft on it? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? People said to the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul said, and the Reformers said, no, no, no way. Look back at the passage, Romans chapter 6, verse 2. By no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? See, again, we haven't just been given complete freedom, assurance, unchanging righteous status as a kind of abstract thing. We have been given those things because we have Christ. He who loves us and died for us is ours. So will we then easily sin against him? If you've been walked through the death of sin, someone paying it for you, and brought to life on the other side. Why, oh why, would you ever want to go back to play with death causing sin? If Jesus suffered so for our sins, why would we heap more pain upon his sacred head? We're Christians, not for all the free, secure benefits provided, but because we came to love Jesus. That's what eternal life is, knowing and loving Jesus. So grace will never lead us to shrug our shoulders at sin. The grace of Jesus leads us to gratitude and wanting to know him and be like him and please him. Linked to this is the fact that when Jesus unites himself to our lives and changes our status, although our sinful natures are not removed, our hearts, remember we were talking about our fallen hearts in the first session, our sinful fallen hearts are changed. The Holy Spirit of Christ gives to us new desires within us. Our hearts come to life 
and start fighting sin. Whereas before our hearts were darkened and we wouldn't, couldn't desire God. We were, we were fast bound in sin and nature's night. Now we've been made alive to God. Our hearts have enlarged and the Lord is now at the centre. And we can now choose to love him. And over time, God, for the sake of our joy, will see that we do. So look at verse 4. We were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You know, baptism is the, is the symbol, it's the image of our union with Christ. Um, it's, it's the picture of the reality that we've been buried with Christ into death. But in order that, we may live a new life, new freedom, new power to choose life, to choose Jesus. The passage talks in verse 6 about being no longer slaves to sin. Now, I think this image of the heart is really, is really important. We were talking about you know, Luther's diagnosis, the Bible's diagnosis of our, of our fallen hearts, where, where we think that we are free to choose what we want. And that's right. But what we want before we know Christ is, 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 a, kind of, is a limited kind of package. Our wants, what our hearts are inclined towards, are, is sin. Because God is not within that, the realms. God is out here. But when our hearts become renewed, God comes into, we begin to desire God. But you see, all of the other old desires are there, so there's a war on in our hearts. It's quite clear from what Paul says in Romans that there's a war on, but that we can begin to choose God and God will ensure that we do. It's no longer inevitable that sin reigns, verse 12, in our lives, or that sin should be your master, verse 14. Final thing to say, it is as we grasp our true status and identity in Christ, and that we are justified, that we change and grow. That is, that we are sanctified. In the medieval church, um, the medieval church kind of put justification and sanctification together. So they said that um, the way that you get right with God is that some grace kind of infuses into your life and you begin to kind of choose to go God's way. Grace is a kind of spiritual Red Bull, gives you the energy to gradually change your state. But the reformer said, no, that's ridiculous. You know, you, you cannot contribute at all. So the reformer said, no, justification has to happen first. Grace is given you, grace alone, to change your status now. You are a child of God. You're adopted into God's family. You are fully acceptable in the beloved but then out of your new status you can begin to change you should begin to change the holy spirit at work in our hearts but they're not the same thing your status is changed once and for all and then the state of your heart and your life begins to be changed and it's as we grasp our status that we change and grow See, too easily I forget that my identity is Christ. 
I go back and I think that I am what I do. You know, we go, we go back, don't we, to works-based medieval religion. This is why the Reformation still matters. We are medieval in our minds and the way that we think. So I go back to thinking, I am what I do. And I swing between pride, you know, I'm doing really well. God must really like me. And despair, I've mucked up. Perhaps I'm not even a Christian. But when I remember that Christ defines me, I'm much more immune to both pride and despair, pride and failure. In him, whatever I do, I am no failure at all. I am triumphant. I am loved. And in him, what have I really to be proud of but him? So the Apostle Paul, um, in verse uh, 11 of Romans 6, says, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's a, some of the older translations say, reckon yourself, which coming from Essex, I much prefer. You know, we used to always say, you know, we're at school, it's like, you reckon yourself, don't you? Yeah, I do. I do reckon myself. Yeah? Reckon yourself? Yeah. I do. And that's, you see, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, reckon yourself. Reckon yourself dead to sin alive to God in Christ Jesus you know you need to know who you are you know we wake up every morning and our kind of you know the computer has gone to a default position which is the default position of I am what I do we need to reboot and say I am in Christ and in Christ I have all things and I want to live for him you know you reckon yourself got to find ways of reckoning yourself of reminding yourself and reminding one another you are dead to sin you are alive to God you are in Christ Jesus reckon yourself remember who you are be who you are there was a time when um Prince Charles was at breakfast with William and Harry this is when William and Harry were much younger and the boys were you know they were mucking around you know flicking Rice Krispies at each other and, you know, just being, being naughty. And Prince Charles, from across the table, um, said to William, 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 remember who you are. <laughs> and Prince William suddenly stopped, you know, flicking Weetabix at his brother and pulled himself up to the status of a future king. And we need to do that. You need to pull yourself up. You need to wear that robe of righteousness. You need to wear that crown. Because you are a, a, a future king or queen. You're going to reign with Christ. Remember who you are. How can you go on sinning? Yeah, you still want to. But you want to love God because you are in Christ. You are his. Salvation is by Christ alone, and it's all about him. Our identity is in him. Shall we pray? Let's pray together. Oh, we praise you, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
you are so glorious. You are so wise. You are so amazing. And Heavenly Father, you've given us the greatest gift. You've given us your son who you love, who you delight in. And you've united him to us so that we might be drawn into the family of delight. So that we might be married to the son who you love. He shares all things with us. He takes all of our sin, all of our damnation, all of our death. And you see us as his bride. You see us as his brothers and sisters. You see us as your children. You see us as heirs of the kingdom. You see us as righteous. You see us as robed. You see rings on our fingers, crowns on our heads. This is who we are in Christ. Not because there's anything in us, but because you have set your love upon us. And we pray that we would reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And that we would give our lives, not as instruments of sin, of wickedness, but as instruments of righteousness to serve you. That we'd stand in our identity and we would grow in his likeness. So please, Lord, meet us now uh, by the power of your spirit that these words of life and reality would sink deep into our hearts and beings, that we might receive them and accept them, that you might renew us and change us and use us. Please so work in us over this weekend that we might be more deeply assured and that we might be equipped and equipping one another to walk about in freedom and in service of the great King. And we ask it in his name.